Hi, this is Wilson, lead pastor of Renew Church OC. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our sermon series, Psalms, the Internal Life of David, pairs narratives from David's life with Psalms that help us pull back the curtain to understand what he's feeling, how he's praying, and the way he's relating to God. LA is all about how you look and the two-second impression you give to other people. But God doesn't look at the appearance. He looks at the heart. I hope this series helps us to take our eyes off of the external and focuses our attention on developing our internal life with Jesus. All right, with that, we have our tradition at Renew where we're going to break off into small groups for five minutes. And this is a great time for you just to get to meet some of the people around you um, and share a little bit of your story with one another. So our question today is, what is one of your favorite Renew moments? But I know some of you guys might be new or here just for a few times. So the other question will help us with our marketing department. How did you find Renew? Okay. Let me know what keywords to put into Google. I'll see you guys in five minutes. All right. Come on back, everyone. We'll have another opportunity at the end of service to pray for each other. So I have a, quite a few favorite moments at our church. I think about how we did trunk or tree right at the rooftop of the parking lot. And it was one of those moments where I really felt like we came together. And not only did we get to serve the kids in our community, but we got to become kids. I was using the restroom and I saw Johnny walk in and he's like, I am so ashamed of my outfit because he was dressed like an angel with wings. I was like, but you chose it. He didn't choose it. He got assigned to be Gabriel over, like, his resurrection trunk, you know, and he would say, uh, he is risen, and then this big boulder would move, and the trunk would be empty. Uh, so when I walked up, and Johnny's like, it is risen, the boulder moved, and dead Jesus was laying in the trunk because they were playing a prank on me. And I was like, did I come the wrong day? Did I come on day two? You know, so I just love that. I love that we have a youth group. Me and Nina... We were uh, praying over our church thinking, man, we're we're probably going to be the oldest people when we plant this church. Our kids are going to be the oldest for the rest of their life. They're not going to have any friends. And to see a youth group form from the families who have came here and found a home here. And I have some of my sweetest moments um, in youth group. And to have like Aubrey stand up here owning the church, talking about doing a dance um, class is just so fun for me. And then the third thing I really like about our church, or our third moment, is actually when we, um, the ability we have to talk about hard things. So I think about our conversation on abortion just a, f- a week ago. And now I'm thinking about these moments where we've talked about sexual addiction and pornography. It's weird to have that maybe as one of your favorite things, but when I think about going to church week in and week out in, my, in college as a young adult, that was the sin that dogged me every Sunday. And, and I think maybe all of us have these spaces in our heart, these really dark things we're wrestling with. And if church isn't the place where line, light is shown, if the church people are the people where you're fake instead of authentic, then where can you wrestle with those things? And so I remember uh, two years ago when we did a, a sermon series on sexual addiction, Roy came uh, Roy Kim held a workshop for 10 weeks. 
and we had 20 plus men come together to learn about how to fight sexual addiction. But we also had 20 plus women come together. And out of that, we formed 10 accountability groups. And I think it, for many of us, it was the first time we found space to, to name an addiction that has uh, corroded our lives and to have other people say, let's fight this together. So I'm super grateful for Roy, and he's actually a big part of our sermon today as we look at David and Bathsheba. He'll, I'll be interviewing him in two points of the sermon. Um, I'm really grateful he's coming to our church alongside of his wife, Jennifer, and, and, their, and their teenage daughter, Audrey. And um, it's just like a privilege to have you here. One of the things that has really encouraged me about Roy is that he'll stop me a few times and say, Wilson, when you share vulnerably, when you talk about your addiction, um, it's, it's something that opens everyone else up to be able to tackle their sin too, to be, be able to face, you know, things that are hard or, or, or addictions in their life. And that means so much coming from an older brother in Christ. And then he said, Wilson, if you ever need a second voice on stage so that you don't feel alone, so that other people know that other pastors have struggled with addiction as well, like I'm willing to do that. So seven days later, I'm like, Roy, come on, come on up. So that's how this happened. Uh, really grateful for you, uh, your vulnerability and your willingness to share your expertise and your story with us. But first, we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. And one of the best parts about going to small group is that you are primed for these sermons. You're wrestling with the text. You're asking questions. You know the narrative. So in David and Bathsheba, we're going to be summarizing some parts of it because of the length of, of the text we're going to be talking through. And then we're going to be looking at Psalms 51. So our series is coupling narratives from David's life with a psalm that he wrote in that time period, reflecting on it. So that we're not only seeing his external life, but we're able to peel back and look at how is he relating to God himself and others internally as he's going through these big moments. And for David, this is a big moment. It, it really sucks, right? It's like, man, he, he fought a giant. When you think about David, he fought a giant. He killed Goliath. He was anointed as a shepherd boy. He became king. Oh, and then there was that one thing where he, he killed a soldier and took his wife. Like, that's a pretty bad mark. Like, if you're like, hey, remember Wilson? He was a great pastor, a great father. But that one time, that one time he killed a church member and took his wife. You know, like, that's not cool. And it's like, how did this happen to David? How did this happen to a man who wrote massive amounts of psalms, whose heart was, was the heart that God was looking for, who, who wasn't willing to even kill the man who was chasing him into caves? And so at first, we just kind of want to do an autopsy of this incident. In the spring, in ver chapter 11, verse 1, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the entire Israel army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got out from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. 
the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now, when you look at this passage, I think about this autopsy of sin because this is how all grotesque sins happen. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he, he didn't say, hey, do you want to betray God and leave the garden? No, it's like, hey, look at this fruit. Now touch it. Now think of all the good things that can come from it. And in the same way, we see David not live out his purpose. When kings go to war, well, he's a king. He's staying at home. He's not doing what he's called to do. And in the space of sloth and laziness, laziness um, the enemy starts to tempt him. Walking around a roof, seeing a woman bathing. Instead of taking his eyes off of her, he lingers. Maybe that's not the worst thing, but then he does this ancient Google search of sending someone to find out about her. Again, maybe just searching for information, like who is she? Is she single? Is she eligible? This person brings back information. She's married, but he still sends for her. And I think there's times where we do evil, but we case it with like, maybe it's not going to be that bad. Maybe I'm just going to have dinner. Maybe I just want to find out how, how her marriage is, right? Just all these excuses lining up. He, impreg he sleeps with her, and at that point, there still might be a separation. Hey, what happened in Vegas stayed in Vegas. No one has to know. It was a one-night stand. I was on a business trip. It's okay. I can go and live my normal life. But she becomes pregnant. And then out of her pregnancy, we see David start to think about how to cover up uh, this moment with Bathsheba. And so he sends for Uriah in verse 8, and he, he's... He cloaks this with like, hey, I want to find out about the war that uh, my army is in. Can you send Uriah? Let me ask him how the battle's going. So Uriah gives a report, and then he's ready to send Uriah home with a gift. And every soldier comes home for war. What's the first thing he's thinking about? So he sends her, he sends her home, but he doesn't go home. And you could feel David's frustration. Uriah, why didn't you go home? You have a beautiful wife. I mean, I don't know what your wife looks like, but she might be beautiful. And then he says, haven't you come home from a military campaign? Campaign? Why didn't you go home? And look at Uriah's response. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open country. How can I go home to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So he's sleeping in the palace courts with the servants because he's loyal to his um, brotherhood at arms. He's loyal to his commander. He's loyal to his king. David then asks Uriah to come back. He eats with him. He gets him drunk, right? An easy segue into sleeping with your wife is drinking hard. And he is drunk, but even drunk, Uriah doesn't go home. He puts out his mat, sleeps with his master's servant. And then it turns even darker. David sends Uriah back into war. And he tells Joab, send him to the fiercest part of the fighting. Send him to the funnels where you're surrounded by your enemies and there's no one to come behind you. Send him to where the arrows can pierce the deepest and where the archers have the best line of sight. Send him there. And when he's fighting uh, for his life, when he's fighting for the kingdom and the king, pull everyone else out and let him die. 
What a tragic story. What a deep betrayal. And it was almost this reversal of Saul, just as David was willing to give his life up for Saul. And Saul was trying to kill him in the most intimate ways, at his home, in his sleep, chasing him into caves. David, when he has power, it corrupts him too. And he kills a soldier that loved him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But this thing David had done displeased the Lord. We're going to pause here and think about some questions when it comes to addiction. Like what are some classic signs of addiction that we saw in David? Um, and then we're also going to talk about what it looks like to be bearing our sins. So I'm going to invite Roy Kim up, and then we're just going to do a short interview with him before we move on to the next uh, part of the sermon. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Roy is a, is a therapist, and he specializes in sexual addiction. Um, and some of that comes out of his own story and struggle. So my first question is, what are some classic signs of addiction and sexual addiction you see in David? And we're just kind of holding um, a lot of what Roy and I will talk about is specifically on pornography and sexual addiction. But addiction as a category has a lot of similarities. And all sin is addictive. So as you hear this and you're like, I don't struggle with porn. I don't struggle with uh, sexual addiction. Think about the principles that are relevant to whatever sins and struggles you have in your life. Uh, so there's a, uh, a really great podcast out there called Pure Desire. And uh, these are Christian hosts who have gone through a lot of sex addiction training. And they, on one particular episode, they talk about the David and Bathsheba um, tragedy. And they were asking kind of rhetorically, uh, did David just have a bad day? You know, was, he, was this a one-off time where he was dumbstruck by the beauty of some person and then fell into a trance and then uh, one bad decision led to another and then it turned out into this tragedy? And, uh, you know, they asked it not because they're really asking it, but they, they are firm believers that, no, this was not just a bad day. And I, and I agree with them. And I think to uh, understand a little bit more about addiction, uh, we have to understand a little bit about how the brain works. Now, trust me, I'm no neuroscientist. Uh, I just did kind of like neuroscience for dummies. And there's something called dopamine, which is like a, like a, a neurotransmitter or, or a chemical, if you will, that's produced in the brain. And dopamine is involved in many different functions uh, in our life. Uh, one of them, for our purposes today, being um, the experience of pleasure and reward. Okay, so. Um, if you think about normal things in life that give you pleasure, you might think about um, 
your dog uh, greeting you when you come home, the dog's tail is wagging, you're petting your dog's head, and it's just nice, right? It's just like, oh, like this is pleasurable. It's, it's, it's so nice to feel this way. Um, you go for a walk or you go for a nice hike. It's clean air. You know, you get out of the city. This is really nice, right? Um, dopamine's working there. Uh, you, you have a really messy workstation. Um, you, you, you do a nice little home edit, right? And then you are cleaning off your desk and, oh, this feels so nice. These are kind of normal things that make you feel good and rewarded for your efforts. Then you have something like cocaine, which uh, is one of the things that would make your dopamine go crazy. Uh, you might have um, a huge win at gambling, uh, whether it's DraftKings, whether it's craps, whether it's, you know, whatever, and dopamine's going crazy. Um, then you have sex, which, you know, if you achieve, you know, orgasm or any sort of thing that heightens that sexual pleasure, the dopamine's going to go crazy. Um, so as, as a person experiences dopamine rushes that are like cocaine level, um, suddenly petting your dog and taking a walk doesn't quite do it for you anymore. You're going to want to have that same cocaine feeling. So you're going to seek out that cocaine, whether it's, you know, you, you deplete your, your, your account, uh, you go into debt, but anything, anything to chase that feeling again. And then the things that uh, you normally would experience pleasure in, you don't really feel it's that great. So um, going back to David, um, if I remember correctly, he had multiple wives and he had many concubines. Um, so sexual partners galore. And for anyone with any sort of a sexual addiction, it's not about necessarily quantity in the sense of one beer doesn't give me the buzz anymore, so I'm gonna go to two beers. You know, one keystone to two keystones, one PBR to two, two, two PBRs. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's one woman, one sexual experience, but then that one woman doesn't do it for me anymore. I need a different woman or another woman beyond that. So he has access to multiple different types of sexual experiences, and that is going to classically feed into a sexual addict's uh, uh, dopamine uh, fix. And, um, and he also has um, entitlement because he's king. He can have access to any sort of sexual experience that he wants on demand just by asking for it, and no one's going to question him because he's king. So if you have variety on demand and access on demand, that's a pretty bad combo. And if I were a betting man, uh, I would say that he's got all the makings of a sex addict. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I think, you know, none of us are kings in a palace. But when you say having sex on demand and in variety, I can't help but think about like the hundreds of thousands of pornographic videos in our pockets if we don't have filters. That's on demand, uh, you know, with every variety under the sun. And in the same ways, we can develop 
very easily, especially in this stage of our techno technological world, this type of addiction. And even just like swiping left over and over again on our phones, or even going on dates over and over again with like that desire to fall in love. You, you had a term for that. How did you say it? Uh, limerence. Limerence is uh, part of the, the, it's, it's the, the feeling of being in love. And so people can be addicted to that feeling as well. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of modern ways in which we are experiencing the same opportunities and exposures that David had. Uh, would you be willing to just share a personal story of addiction in your life? Yeah. Um, so uh, as Pastor Wilson uh, mentioned, I, uh, I was a pastor uh, as well before I became a therapist. And uh, I remember uh, being maybe at the, the height of my sexual addiction while I was a pastor, while I was in seminary as well. And um, there were times when I was, well, I had to basically prepare a message for the, uh, for the church every single week. That was kind of part of my task. And it was so stressful to me because, you know, I'm being evaluated in a sense. You know, um, uh, the, the people are evaluating me. I'm evaluating myself. I'm trying to, trying to make sure that I craft a sermon that does justice to the word and also uh, is received in a way that you can kind of tell as a pastor, oh, this is landing with them. You know, so I, I wanted that feeling constantly, but it was very stressful for me to be uh, feeling that pressure. So, you know, my sexual addiction started way back when, like, you know, maybe nine, ten years old. And so by the time that I was pastoring, this addiction has now had years worth of repetition. Mm. And so um, I'm dealing with my own stress by um, looking at porn as taking a, while taking breaks from preparing a, a message for the church, which is complete cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And um, back then, this was pre-internet, this was when Netflix had those red envelopes. Uh, you had the DVDs that comes to your house. And at the time, I was living in a, uh, a, a home where there were uh, like four or five other pastors living with me. Okay, so as you imagine, uh, week in, week out, these red envelopes are coming in the mail with my name, uh, with my name on the address. And, you know, there are times that I'm kind of rushing to the mailbox to get the, uh, to get the DVD before anyone else gets the mail. But there are some times that they beat me to it. And, of course, I'm kind of, my heart is pounding because what if that particular day that red envelope has a rip in it? And, and whoever was my roommate could see what was in the disc. And so I'm, I'm nervous on that, on that front. Uh, and then even when I'm looking at the video, um, uh, it's, you can only kind of watch the same video so many times before you start to lose interest in that particular sex scene or that nudity. So, you know, talking about the tolerance again, you, um, after maybe two or three viewings, it doesn't do it for you anymore. Petting a dog, taking a walk, you know, those things don't do it for you anymore. So now I need another video. So I'm now building a, a queue in my Netflix account so that I get DVD after DVD of new sexual 
uh, images or, or scenes to stimulate my brain and to, and, to, and to meet my fix. And this went on for quite some time. And it was just where you know, like, what the heck am I doing? But at the same time, it's like that's the only way that I knew how to deal with my own uh, stress and my own like discomfort with myself. And anytime that I felt anything negative, mm. I would turn to porn as a way to kind of escape into fantasy. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think anyone who's had any addiction understands the risk we're willing to take in order to grab at something and also wanting needing to escalate and how scary it is as we lose control of that um, we also see david and uriah as he is trying to bury his sin so maybe if you could just share a little bit about what's going on here in terms of uriah trying to bury his sin and how we see that in uh sex, sex addicts well i think it boils down to um self-protection and a refusal to live in reality. And so um, for him, um, he's trying to protect himself from consequences. Like what happens if people find out that uh, I impregnated this woman? You know, what will Uriah think of me? What will my army think of me? What will my citizens think of me? Will I be deposed? You know, uh, what, what's going to happen to me? Um, and so he's trying to cover his tracks as a way to self-protect. But when it comes to, like, not living in reality, um, it doesn't, until the confrontation, you know, with, with Nathan, there's no real indication that he's thinking that um, he ruined not only Uriah's life, Uriah's parents' life, Uriah's siblings lost a sibling. Uh, he, he, he made a widow of Bathsheba. Um, the, uh, the, the unborn son is never going to know his true father. You know? uh, no, sorry, he's not, he's not going to know his, his rightful father, uh, Uriah. Um, and so it's like he's not willing to actually think about the, the actual damage that he caused Instead, he chooses to stay in this alternate reality, or even he even tells Joab, I believe, uh, what was it? Um, he, he tells messengers to go back to Joab when he finds out about, about Uriah's death. He says, you know, Joab, don't let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Yeah. Like, it's, it's awful stuff. Like, this is a cold-blooded dude, right? Mm -hmm. So he's completely... Uh, departing away from reality and and uh, and self-protection is the only thing that he's thinking about, and it's it's really tragic. Yeah, I, I remember us kind of reflecting on this portion, saying like, when you have an addictive part of your life that you're hiding, you're not only protecting like your outward appearance of who you are in front of other people and your reputation, because you want people to still like you, you still want to keep your family somehow. You know, I still want to be a pastor, keep power. And then you're also protecting the addiction because that's what's like giving you pleasure and helping you not feel sad and it becomes like a friend. So you're, you're protecting both of these worlds but never allowing yourself to integrate them or letting them see each other. 
Um, did you have a story on kind of that self-protection as well in your life? So, yeah, um, I remember, so I, I mentioned that my, my sexual addiction started way early. And so even by the time that I was a teenager, I had, uh, I had my roots dug in deep in this. And for my 16th birthday, uh, my high school friends, they bought me a Playboy magazine as a gift. And again, pre-internet, uh, if I were to ever seek out you know, nude magazines, it would have to be uh, having, the, having the guts to tell the cashier at 7-Eleven, hey, can I get that you know, Playboy magazine behind you? Uh, or I would need to maybe go to a friend's house who I knew whose you know, dad or uncle or whatever had a stash of Playboy magazines. That was really the only way that I can have access to it. So now I had access whenever I wanted because of this magazine. And, um, you know, I, of course, I kept that from my parents. And I, in my bedroom, I had this one bookcase, and I would put that, uh, that magazine, when I wasn't looking at it, um, you know, tucked into that bookcase. And I remember times that I'd be, you know, studying and then getting stressed from studying, taking a break, watching porn uh, in, in the magazine. And then, you know, when you are that... Uh, when you're in a, an addiction like that, you're, all your senses get hypersensitive. Um, I, I had like spider senses when I could tell every little creak in the, in the staircase that I knew that someone was coming up the staircase, coming towards my bedroom. So I would you know, quickly you know, put that, uh, that magazine back into the bookcase so that you know, whoever was coming couldn't see it. And so my mom would come in and her being a, uh, just a wonderful Korean mom. She'd come with like a plate of fruit, you know, as I'm studying. Oh, do you want some fruit? Mom, no, I don't need it right now. You know, just being so rude to her and gaslighting her as if like she did something wrong for doing something kind to me. But really what I was thinking was get out of my room right now so that I can go back to this dastardly deed, right? And there are times when I'm away at school and, you know, I come back seeing that maybe the clutter in my room was all kind of organized, you know, organized, by her. Organized clutter. Yeah. And she's come, you know, she had come in. I, I, I can clearly see that she had come in and, and, and uh, edited stuff. And I'm getting upset because she's doing this kind thing for me. But what I'm really upset about is did you find out what I did? You know, did you find out, you know, what was on my bookshelf? And so my gaslighting of her um, was, it, it's, 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 such a, it's such a reveal of what's inside my heart that I would make someone else feel bad for something that I'm just merely trying to protect about myself. And um, that sense of, self-protection and not living in reality is something that I could really relate to when it comes to what David was doing. Yeah. Thanks so much, Roy. Really appreciate you. All right, we're going to go back to the passage now. Um, 
And we are going to look at Nathan talking to David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 1 through 4. Roy, I think we're going to run out of time again, so I'll have to just plug your thing. I'm sorry about that. Um, so again, the Lord was displeased with David. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. So David's thinking, the prophets come to me with a judicial case. I'm going to be a judge over the civil matter, which kings often did during that time. The man who had a large number of sheep, the rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle. So they were, they were a commodity to him. They were his dinner. They were food. But a poor man had nothing except one little eel lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the eel lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who, who did this must die. He must pay that for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. You see, David was a, a shepherd. He understood what it mean, meant to hold a lamb, to deliver it from its mother, maybe to sleep with it as, as it's shivering. He loved lambs like Deshae and Kelsey loves dogs, right? Like it's like a, almost a human, like one step below human. So to tell a shepherd that a lamb that was loved was used as a meal, I mean, David was furious. I think when he says this man must die, he was just reacting. And then he gives his judicial decree, right? So I don't think he, he's, he's, as a king, he's going to execute him. But he feels like, he feels like killing him. And then he says he has to pay four times over. Then Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the man who took women, objectified them, slept with whoever you want. It was easy for you. It meant nothing. But this other man, Uriah, loved his wife. And you took his wife. You murdered him and you slept with her. And then he indicts David with, with the punishment of God. That out of his own kin, this would happen to him. What he did in secret would be done in, in public. This baby would pass that he had with Bathsheba. And I know so many questions come out of that that I'm willing to have discussions with you afterward. But David, but when no one else would call out David on his sin, God does. And I want us just to focus on this little line, you are the man. Because when we look at this next passage in Psalms chapter 51, it's easy just to think of it scholastically. Like look at all this messed up things that David did here, and of course he needs to repent. But when I read this line, you are the man, I think about the moments in my life where I messed up, where I sinned against the Lord, and he called me out on it. There was a time I was invited to a pastor's conference, and it was almost a who's who's of pastors. It was over $1,000 to get in. There was a lineup of great speakers, all TED Talk style. And one woman talked about human trafficking. And I remember going to her workshop, me and, and some of the pastors that I looked up to my whole life. 
And she shared this brutal story of this woman she had helped rescue who had been trafficked. But because of the psychological damage done to her, she went back to uh, her traffickers. And they, they killed her in a brutal way and threw her body in the streets of L.A., telling all the women, if you run away, this is what happens to you. And I remember raising my hand and saying, help me build a bridge between the college student who's watching porn on his laptop and this woman who's laying on the street. And I remember she locked eyes with me and she would not let go. It was like the rest of the room just disappeared. And her and the Lord and I knew that it wasn't a college student, it was me. She said the same women who are thrown into rooms for rape, the same women who are um, forced to be in the strip clubs are the same women that are being seen on the screen. They're the same women. And so the people who participate are as evil as those who are trafficking them. It's part of the same system. And she said this with such anger, but with such clarity. She didn't raise her voice, but there was fire in her eyes. And I knew that I was standing under the judgment of the Lord. Again, this might not be your sin, but haven't we all hurt and scarred the people around us? Haven't we all done things that feel unspeakable? What do we do with those moments in our lives? When you look at Psalms 51, it teaches us how to pray, how to confess our sins. It says, for the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David himself is reflecting on this moment. And I don't think he's too far in terms of proximity. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. The only thing and the first thing David says when, when Nathan is indicting him is, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is him fleshing that out. He's saying only God can forgive me. And when he says, when he asks God for forgiveness, he's not looking uh, on himself. He's not looking at the things he's done. He's not bringing anything to the table. He's not saying, God, would you forgive me because I've been good all these other years. God, would you forgive me because I've had to take the burden of your kingdom. God, forgive me and I'll do better. Don't we often approach God with ourselves, with what we can do, what we can offer, what we've done. But David doesn't do that. God, forgive me according to your love and great faithfulness and compassion. Forgive me because of your character and not mine. When we're asking for forgiveness, we don't look at ourselves. We have our eyes on the Lord. The only thing we offer to God, the only thing he accepts is verse 17. This is the only time I'm skipping through. It says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. We don't bring our, our accolades, our titles, our accomplishments. We just bring a broken and contrite heart and know that God forgives us 
in our brokenness. The second part, he owns his sin and guilt. For my transgressions and my sin are always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So here, uh, David doesn't hide or minimize his sin. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, hey, the woman was bathing. Um, I, how can I help myself? He doesn't say all the other kings are doing the same thing. He allows the evil of his sin to sit in. He allows himself to stare at what he's done. Don't we often glance and look away? Haven't we been taught tools to kind of say, oh, forgive me, and then I can move on. David allows the weight of his sin to hit him. He doesn't look away. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't try to gain some distance between him and God. He stares it in the face, and he asks for forgiveness. He owns the evil he's done, and he owns the consequences of his sin. Then he says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. What's he saying? I think in the same way uh, that Roy alluded to, I think David knows it wasn't a fluke. I think David is, is saying that it wasn't just because I was caught in a bad situation. He's saying that there's something inside me that's broken. There's something in my history that's wrong. And he's not looking at just the incident, he's taking a clear look at his own soul and his own history. And that's why later he says, created me a clean heart. That it wasn't an action, the issue wasn't in the action, the issue was in his heart, that his heart is evil. And he's willing to take deep looks at himself as he's asking for forgiveness. Then he says, Cleanse me with the hip sop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let joy and gladness, um, let me hear joy and gladness. And let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. He's asking to, for God's complete forgiveness. The hyssop is a, is a plant that was used as a cleansing ritual. For priests, they would dip it in blood and then sprinkle it on the leopard. Uh, cleansing him from leprosy. And what David says is that my leprosy is not in my skin, but it's in my soul. And it's contagious. That the evil I've done has touched my family. The evil I've done has infected Uriah and killed him. And he's asking to be clean. He's asking to be whiter than snow and that his sin would be blotted out. It's a complete and comprehensive forgiveness that he's asking for. And he says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Here David is speaking about the torture of trying to hold on to sin and bury it and hide from it. And trying to still worship, play his harp, and long for God. It's like a soul being pulled apart and divided. One of the commentaries said it was a year later that Nathan um, convicted him. Have, have you lived in that limbo 
between wanting to run towards sin but also being pulled by the Spirit? Have you lived in sitting with sin and saying, and, and, and missing the presence of God in your life, that subtle peace, that joy beyond comprehension, the, the way that God is near you when you just pray and worship. In our sin, we feel the fleeting of God's intimacy and presence. I don't think David loses his salvation, but he loses the joy of it. Brothers and sisters, have you lost the joy of your salvation? Have you lost intimacy with God and you're just kind of faking church and faking worship and going through the motions of religion without experiencing its life? Maybe there's sin to be confessed and laid out before the Lord so that you too can have your joy restored. Lastly, we see that in his restoration, he restores others. You see, we, when we sin, we do deep damage to the, especially to the people we have authority uh, over. The people we're stewarding, we do the deepest damage to. Like, if you're here for the first time, you, there's a limited amount of damage that you could do to this church, right? I haven't given you the mic to preach. You don't have a reputation. No one sees you as, your, as their pastor. You're, 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 you're visiting, you can still damage, but it's limited. But think about the damage I can do, right? Think about me just yelling at you for two hours and sending you home. That's pretty damaging, right? Or as a pastor saying something that, that just cuts you because you've learned to trust my words. Or just running away with the reserves. When you have authority, you can do damage. And you do do damage in the sins that you commit. David did damage over Israel when he counted the army. He did damage over um, the people under him when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. But also, when we are restored and healed, when we live righteously, we restore the lives of others. He says, then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Be, when he experiences healing and forgiveness, he's saying that I can heal and forgive others. I will help others find you, God. In the same way that I've been broken and restored, I will help other people who have been broken in that way find restoration. I think that's when you know that you understand God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. If you think you've forgiven yourself and healed yourself of sin, if you think you overcame addiction because you're strong and you have good willpower, you're not going to help anyone. You're just going to stand in judgment of them. Like, hey, I did it. Why can't you? Why are you struggling with that? I don't struggle with that. You know, why, why, don't, why can't you just get over that? But that's a sure sign that you are not before the cross receiving his grace and mercy. You earned your salvation and sanctification. For those of us who understand that we are where we are because of his grace in our life. That every good thing comes from the Lord. That every, every ounce of righteousness is because he forgave us. We don't judge others. We see someone's bro broken and we sit next to them. And we say, I remember I was there too. And I couldn't help myself. I just invited Jesus to heal me. You know, I hate sharing about my addiction. Um... 
But I made a covenant with the Lord and I said, God, every inch of freedom you give me, I will live openly so that other people can take that same ground. Because I know that I've tried everything to find my way into freedom. But what I ended up finding was just God's love and grace over and over again. I found a brother who said, I want to walk with you with every step. I found a, a community that will still let me pastor them. And so I'm willing uh, to go back to my brokenness and help others find restoration. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O oh God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. When it's God who restores and redeems us, we praise him and not ourselves. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, Lord, do not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and the burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be afraid, uh, offered on your altar. So he's saying that before you serve the Lord, before you lead for him, before you counsel others, make sure you're examining your heart. But as you are made whole, then serve the people others, others and make them whole. See the way that God's redeemed and restored you and how that will redeem and restore your family. You know, the most important thing I could do for you isn't to have vision or strategy. It's not to preach great sermons. It's for me to work on the, the, the darkest recesses of my soul. For me to give attention to my pride and addiction. And you'll never see the effort I put in. You understand, if you're trying to recover from an addiction, that's actually the hardest thing you'll ever do. You feel like giving up over and over again. And just kind of feeling like, man, if I could just put this in a box and live the rest of my life, I want to do that. But I'll, I'll tell you that my greatest effort in life has not been to you, but to this sin. And I've seen God help me and move me miles in it. And I've heard Roy's story of, of him being a sexual addiction therapist because of the restoration in his life and him willing to go there to go to his greatest place of brokenness and to invite you to restoration as well. He doesn't have to, right? He's married. He has a beautiful kid. They could just live that perfect suburban life with no questions. And yet he's inviting us into this place of brokenness. So, Roy, I lied to you. Would you come up and just share a story of redemption and kind of your calling into sexual being a sexual addiction therapist. And now I would love to pray and do communion and close our time in worship. You have a mic there in case you're worried about. <laughs> so kind of thinking about what is the work required to have sobriety, some practical advice as you know, we've broached the topic of accountability groups, um, which is still amazing for our church, right? But it's easy to kind of do the same thing over and over again. And so kind of introducing us a little bit, uh, giving us some principles on that. Um, 
You know, it's a, it's a very different kind of experience after decades of um, living with a projection of yourself, um, that you're trying so hard to create an image of yourself and then going home and realizing what I, what I presented was a sham. It's hard, but that's what I became used to. I became very good at that, you know. Um, and it's a very different experience because uh, I would never be uh, sharing about what I would be struggling with or what I did. Um, oh, careful. Um, never would I have imagined like ever sharing about this kind of stuff to anybody. That was my secret, and I was ready to just kind of take that to my grave, you know. But once I realized, you know, uh, you know, I had kind of a, a David Nathan moment myself uh, several times, and um, I, I got to a place where I needed to know how do people actually recover from this? And it's not a one-and-done uh, confession prayer, which I maybe thought it was, because I felt like, oh, that must be the magic bullet. You know, you, you pray once on a mountaintop, and then you're, you're done. You know, that's what I hoped for. And then if it didn't happen, then I thought that maybe my, my faith wasn't enough. But I tried that a hundred times. Yes, I tried it a hundred times, and it didn't work. So what I realized was that I had to get into a place where I could practice reality, I could practice truth-telling, um, not just before the Lord, but also with fellow um, people. So I, but, you know, not everyone is safe to share that with. And so I had to, you know, make sure that I found the right people to share that with. And, you know, God gave me the right people over time um, to do that. And that's kind of, you know, I, I accepted the reality that I had a sickness, you know, and I made... I made no excuses for that. I, I realized that this was my inability to deal with reality, my inability to deal with emotional disturbance, my inability to deal with um, what I was uncomfortable with and dissatisfied with in my own life, and that was my way of distracting myself. And so I had to realize I needed to find a different way of dealing with that level of discomfort. Part of it was to actually sit in discomfort, but not just by myself, but with the Lord's help, with friends' help, to be able to grieve certain things in my life. But also, I had to have the courage to address certain things in my life that were causing the disturbance in the first place. And those things are really difficult. I, 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 I tend to, you know, try to shy away from the hard stuff in life, but that's what it takes to actually get to recovery is to ask yourself those tough questions and to sit with pretty strong, uncomfortable emotions. But that's, you know, what I experienced, and now I can feel like, you know, if, uh, if my wife or my daughter looks at my phone, I don't have that knee-jerk reaction, oh, shoot, like, give me my phone back, you know, because I don't have anything to hide anymore like I used to. If they're searching through my office, I don't have that, mom, what are you doing, kind of thing. Like, you could search anywhere that you want. I feel 
completely at ease because I don't have anything to hide. It's a, it's a wonderful it feeling to be liberated from that, that level of anxiety all the time, you know. And that's kind of what I try to teach my clients too is that I know that's how you're feeling now, but there's going to come a time where you realize that you can have a very liberated life whether you are, um, you know, six months in your addiction or 40 years in your addiction, but it's going to require a certain level of um, reckoning with reality and, um, and a, a new way of living, you know, creating a new heart is, is it, it, it branches out into like just the way that you structure your life and the ways that you can, you know, r uh, kind of in reinterpret how life's challenges and, and emotional disturbances actually affect you because how you interpret that is really important too. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you, Roy. Um, anything else you wanted to share? Was that? I, I, I actually, I'll share on your behalf. So um, Roy put together an online course to help people like us who are in accountability groups, but we don't know how to, like what to do, right? Besides like, oh, did you mess up? Yeah, okay, please pray for me. Um, so he actually gives us tools to fight sobriety, well-researched tools. And I just want to encourage you if you're struggling with this or other addictions, first, addictions do not die of natural causes. They don't just go away one day. I've seen people well into uh, an old age wrestling with pornography. I thought I'd be done with it at 25, at 30, when I got married, when I have my first child. There, it doesn't die of natural causes. You have to kill it over and over again. And so to do that, forming this group, it requires intimacy. And so that's, that's an invitation I want to pull you all into. Again, even if you're not wrestling with this, there's something that is in your life that is hard. Like Sunday service isn't going to do it. I really hope that you would organize your life around small groups. And to not just show up when you feel like it, but really invest in those people in your small groups and allow them to invest in you. Because only when you're a friend can you go and then be an intimate accountability partner. So I think the way I envision this is like, man, you're struggling with this. Go to a small group. Get to know the people in there and find someone else who's wrestling with it as well. And say, will you take this journey into sobriety with me? And then pay Roy $50. If you can't do that, I'll, the church will loan you money on interest. Um, I'm just kidding. We'll help you. And then um, and walk through this. But it takes like years of intentional effort in order for someone to uh, become sober. Years. Years of intentional effort, right? It's not one prayer. It's not one sermon. It's not memorizing 51, even though that's helpful. It's saying, well, I give myself to this. And, it took, and I've been in accountability for 10 years. I've been able to see tremendous progress. But the progress is year to year. It's not day to day. The day to day is fake outs. I just didn't get squeezed hard enough. And so um, we hope to not only give you the sermon, but give you a path forward. But this path requires you to um, give of yourself, to sacrifice something in order to gain freedom. Would you pray for us, Roy? And also, I don't know if you would be willing to, but lead us in communion as you think about. <laughs> do you want me to do that? Okay, let me pray for us and lead us in communion. I don't want to pray twice. God, thank you so much for uh, Roy. Um, and I pray that we would be Christians who experience love and forgiveness from you 
and then goes back to those wounds and invite others people into your grace, into the cross. Your cross doesn't meet Pastor Wilson. Your cross doesn't meet uh, Wilson's 40th birthday party with 150 friends. Um, your, your cross meets me in my sin, in my brokenness, where I need you. And so today as we open up communion, we again just look at our sin, our addiction, and we say, Lord, we need you. We need your cross, Lord. We thank you so much for dying the cross for our sin, that when we see the brutality of what we've done, we get to see the brutality of the cross and how you really did pay for our sin. You paid for all of it. You took an enormous punishment so that we can be free. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take communion with me this morning? I give us five minutes just to, just to pray for one another. Uh, we'll have a team in the back as well to pray for you. And then we'll close in worship. We have a prayer prompt on the screen. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Erwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast. Or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.